occupation is going on in eastern and southern Ukraine. Ukrainian counteroffensive in September has liberated almost the whole Kharkiv region in the northeast of the country. But the more we know about events that happened there during the occupation, the more we realize the scale of the Russian war crimes. We went to Kharkiv region again to learn more. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolonko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Oharkova, who is a Ukrainian scholar and journalist in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest and oldest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. We did this in this trip to Kharkiv region too. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So let's start, Tanya, and let's explain to our listeners what we did, why we are doing that, and uh, later what we have seen. Yes, indeed. We waited for this trip for a couple of weeks. Unfortunately, we were not able to go Kharkiv, uh, to Kharkiv earlier. Even if everything was prepared, we we had to visit a festival and we also bought a car for Ukrainian armed forces. But unfortunately, we got ill. So finally, this weekend, we were able to repeat the same game. So we were going there with a big group, large group of people, uh, mostly pan-Ukraine. means journalists and writers. We are bringing a car which were bought from your donations to Ukraine World Podcast and also to, from our cult podcast um, pet patrons. And we are, our aim was to deliver this car, to deliver people. And um, our plan was to visit not only Kharkiv, as we did many times before already, but also to visit Kharkiv region and specifically uh, places, villages, which were liberated in back in September. So this is, was our goal. We spent uh, two full days in Kharkiv and uh, one evening, so first day and uh, morning of Monday. So quite a, quite a, a big, t- long time, I would say, uh, at least enough to see people in Kharkiv, to see how, how, how the life has changed after the liberation. This is important. And to make a couple of trips to the occupied territories. Maybe, um, maybe let's start uh, describing how Kharkiv leaves shortly. So Kharkiv, if we compare to what was happening back in August, August because our last time in Kharkiv was in August, has um, changed. Uh, you you see much less, you hear much less missiles in Kharkiv during nights. Sometimes there are strikes, but not every night as it was before. And when you walk in the street, Uh, you see much more cars and I would say um, uh, a lot of people. So it looks like uh, Kharkiv is uh, is back to life in a way. Um, and even people were saying that they were expecting 
some heating in uh, in during winter which was not uh, their hope back in august so we would say that Kharkiv looks much better today if you compare to what uh, they lived back in august be- before the counteroffensive because let's explain that artillery fire is no no more possible on um, on, on on the city but the missiles are still arriving from time to time but once again not not uh, every night which is important because psychologically um this is extremely difficult to live in a city in a place where every night you hear these missiles strikes because you cannot relax you cannot plan your life you cannot be feel safe and it's okay if you are in a city for a couple of days as we did but this is extremely difficult to to live in such conditions if you are uh, if you your home is here and you 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 are to continue to live in such conditions and the strikes were not only during the night sometimes the strikes were during the day and uh, people in Kharkiv we talk to we see this syndrome very very interesting very brave one i think that people there uh, value their freedom and their home more than their security so uh you you would hardly meet people who would go uh regularly to the sh- to, to the bomb shelters when when they see when they hear the uh, air alerts and people we communicate with for example with the uh center dobrochinets which means in ukrainian dobrochinets means someone who do uh, who does the good so the the, the volunteer center the, uh, the 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 initiative that helps others that delivers humanitarian aid for those people who need it and um, as we say as we told you uh, in one of our previous podcasts about Kharkiv it is very closely connected with the religious community and um Saint, uh, Saint Dimitri church the Greek Catholic church in in in, in Kharkiv downtown but at the same time um it's it's also important i think to note that uh, this the spirit of these people who who are very active who are working nonstop who are working from early morning until late at night who don't let themselves you know reflect in a bad sense of the term reflect upon the situation and uh, analyze what is going on psychologically and whether they fear the strikes or do not fear the strikes they're really uh, coping with it with with the vita activa with a very active life and this is something very close to to us to our feeling of the situation here here in kiev right but you said that the missile strikes have become rare uh, at least when our friends and parts of our team visited kharkiv in late september for a literature festival which is called the fifth kharkiv and uh, let us explain a little bit more what does it mean uh the fifth kharkiv is a metaphor of yuri shevelov one of the greatest ukrainian intellectuals of the 20th century who lived in kharkiv for half of his life and uh, he just uh, made this little history of kharkiv the first kharkiv when there was the first settlements the settlements were what what we we call sloboda or slobozhanshina which means the people uh, people um, settling themselves on the border of the big step and these were the free settlements right it, 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 so the spirit of freedom was very 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 present there and we can compare it with the with the spirit of zaporizhia or the the spirit of the ukrainian cossacks and then there were some other stages and for example the fourth kharkiv is a kharkiv 
in which the Soviet uh, Soviet identity dominated, Soviet identity of industrial city, a Soviet city of a city of uh, Soviet Homo Sovieticus, and uh, this was a dream for the fifth Kharkiv, the Kharkiv of invention, of creativity, of freedom, etc. And, and I think this is something that is going on right now. So this spirit is is very important in the city right now. Yes, yes, exactly. And we were invited to this festival, and but unfortunately, we were able to participate only online a couple of weeks ago because we were ill. And yes, in, indeed, situation in the city is important. And these people who are in the city, who are active, they are helping not only civilians, they are also helping military. And let's maybe say a couple of words about what, why do we buy cars for the front line? Um, because for soldiers, for Ukrainian troops, which are on the front line, a car can is highly needed. Cars are highly needed. Why? Because they are destroyed extremely frequently. For example, the, our previous car, which arrived to Kharkiv three weeks ago, um, was under fire already. I mean, this military unit was already under fire, and luckily enough for this particular car, it was in a kind of a garage for repair, so they, it was it was not damaged. But other cars of the same military unit were destroyed. So the life of a car on the front line. Actually, in Ukraine, it could be a couple of weeks only. Maybe if you, if you are lucky, maybe a couple of months. Not no more than that, because they drive a lot, because they need to transport things, to transport people. And uh, Ukrainian government, Ukrainian state, unfortunately, is unable to provide all these um, vehicles in such a short term because car cars are needed today. And the soldiers, they don't really care if this car is expensive or not expensive. Expensive. The most important thing is that it is uh, it can be functional, and that it can um, help to transport soldiers or whatever material, whatever whatever they need to do. So that is why a lot of a lot of volunteers in Ukraine, what they do, they uh, do their best to transport as many cars to the front line as possible. So and what we were also doing for this Kharkiv military unit, which is uh, once again in this close um, tie with with cultural um, network close to Dobrochinets and also to a literary museum, uh, Sergei Jadan, uh, famous Ukrainian writer. And Tetiana Pilipchuk, who is director of uh, uh, Kharkiv Literary Museum, which are, which are helping military as well. So this link of, uh, on one hand, military, but on the other hand, artists, uh, people from cultural networks and the church is something which uh, astonished us in the, at the beginning. But now we see that it, it it's really it's really vivid. It's really full of life. It's really uh, full of energy and uh, and extraordinary place. And let us add that uh, cars are needed to be mobile uh, on the front line. And during the shelling, for example, it saves life of soldiers because uh, it, it, it helps you to quickly change the place and also take the soldiers' belongings. Because as we have, have been said by the soldier, by, by the military man who, whom we uh, have given this car, very often you just collect some things for 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 living there you're just living in a, in open air you 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 need some clothes you need some some things for your daily life as an ordinary human being 
because we human beings are surrounded by things. We cannot imagine ourselves without things. But very often the soldier's life is that you need to leave the place very quickly when you are targeted and all your belongings are just burnt or destroyed. And uh, you, all your clothes, all your, all your little things, maybe your mobile phones, maybe your uh, military equipment or just everyday equipment, maybe your, your glasses or your, your plates or something like this. I will never forget the reaction this, uh, this military guy had when we, he saw the car. It was something really joyful and even childish in his, uh, I would say, admiration for just a simple car. He was very glad to get it. It was for, for his unit. And he was explaining quite uh, for minutes and minutes why the way needed it. And, and then he was explaining all these uh, complicated military stories. We didn't really care about that, but it was so spontaneous and so full of joy. And we, uh, we were really happy to see that uh, such a simple thing like a car can can change, can motivate maybe Ukrainian defenders. And, this is also important for and us. And he has given us as a as a gift, has given us the bracelets which he did by himself, and and very, very nice actually pieces of art that these simple soldiers are doing on the front line. So the, these bracelets are very dear to us. Let us also say that we arrived on Friday and we immediately went to the event to the cultural event, which was a discussion by Serhii Jadan that you mentioned, and uh, Slava Vakarchuk, a famous Ukrainian rock singer and the leader of the uh, group Okeanelze. So these are, both of them are very famous people known across Ukraine. And the the room which we they held this discussion was full of people, really. I mean, there are probably several hundreds of people. And there was very interesting, uh, very emotional discussion. It was, of course, underground, but in a very good place. We will not disclose the place uh, because our enemy, enemies can listen to us. But this is a place also very important for this cultural cultural life of Kharkiv. This was a place of this 5th Kharkiv festival. And we, uh, Ukrainian philosophers and uh, literary experts like you, we held an event on Sunday, we discussed um, with the Kharkiv audience, we discussed the question, what Ukraine is giving to the world right now? And there was also many people, not so many as you know, on Jadan and Vakarchuk, but, but many people. We actually didn't expect such, such a number of people who would come to listen to philosophers uh, and writers from Kyiv. Uh, so again, it was it was extremely moving, and and you as you can see, the cultural life in Kharkiv is booming, is developing. Many people want to come to Kharkiv, and uh, and feel the strength of the city. Yes, exactly. And uh, this very moment when you are at a cultural event in a city which was heavily bombarded a couple of months ago and which is still targeted sometimes during the night and you meet, uh, for example, a girl and she says, hi, I'm an artist and probably you've seen my graffiti somewhere in the city and 
Yes, indeed, you remember beautiful uh, street art pieces, and this she, it was uh, her authorship. So it's something very amazing to see all these beautiful people who continue to do art and to communicate in the underground for sure, but who are still uh, extremely active and full of life. Once again, uh, my impression this time was is that Kharkiv is coming back to life, even if uh, nothing is uh, simple, easy, but uh, this is a much better, much better situation than a couple of months ago. But people in Kharkiv would tell us that it never ceased to be in life, so it's maybe coming to a more, more energetic more life of uh, with with more people right and the street art you mentioned is very interesting because i think kharkiv right now is the best place for street art i i don't see such such uh such street art as done by gamlet in kharkiv or by this uh, young woman called dina uh and, and and some other artists i don't see that in in other cities because okay you can, you can have a, gra- a, a, a culture of graffiti but graffiti that we have in ukraine is mostly you know copied from from these western types of graffiti uh, the art that we are talking about is not like this it is very specific it has many you know it is very paradoxical it all always plays with the senses with the world with the words uh, it always plays with the situation the political situation the war situation it also dialogues with uh, with the ukrainian culture with the U- ukrainian literature it's very very interesting Yes, indeed. They consider a city being a kind of a book where they write their messages. And sometimes it's really amazing when you walk through a city and you see a kind of an inscription and it, it appeals to you. So some kind of, kind of, some kind of question or some kind of statement which uh, is uh, really interesting and you just stop and you start thinking. Let's talk about other places that we visited and um, they are actually very dramatic and 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 tragic so the key place is of course the town called Izum and i think our listeners know this the name of the town it is known right now not less than the, the the town Bucha and why it is known because it was liberated in september and uh, as soon as it was liberated a mass uh, cemetery mass grave a mass cemetery i would say was discovered with over 440 or over 450 bodies there. And uh, you might have seen the pictures of exhumation of these bodies. And we have visited the place. Uh, It was already, the bodies were exhumated, so we we just visited a place with with graves, with these holes uh, which were uh, dug in, in the, in the, in the land, in the earth, in the sand, actually. And uh, this is a very difficult place to be. Uh, if, if you follow our, our Twitter, Ukraine World, you, you, you could have seen the videos that we made from this place. But let us tell this story, because we talked to people who were involved uh, into putting these victims of, of Russian atrocities to, 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 to the sand, to the land. What happened there? 
Well, indeed, after this image of this forest with these graves, there were a lot of questions. We had a lot, a lot of questions because some uh, um, graves were having only this uh, wooden cross and a number. But uh, some kind of other graves were having a real cross with a real inscription and with the body of the person of the person identified. And in some places... We saw coffins which were uh, empty and which, which were inside the grave. And in some other places, they were, for example, written on, the, on this cross, something like uh, old lady, old gentleman found that or that street, that or that date. And it was really confusing how it happened and who did all that. And we had a lot of questions whether who was burying these people and how come that, as we know from media, um, a lot of people, mo- majority of people, most all of those people were, um, it was violent deaths, but uh, most, uh, between them, most people were uh, died from, from artillery fire or missiles, whatever, but some bodies were tortured uh, uh, and uh, most of them were civilians, but they were also a mass grave of soldiers. So what we did, we uh, tried to contact, so we, we crossed Izum, a city, and we went to a to a funeral bureau, or whatever you call it, a, just the professionals who were, as reported, active uh, on this cemetery, and we tried to co- to talk to them. So the story told by a lady who is a chief now, she's a kind of director, she, was a, um, she wasn't a director at the time, but the real director, an old woman, she left in June to the Baltic states, if I'm not mistaken, one of the Baltic states, if I'm not mistaken, so she's responsible for, for the activity. So she explained uh, how it functions. So uh, first thing is that they never chose to do so. Uh, it was only that when Russian army started to approach Izum. And Izum, by the way, contrary to Wucha or other places we were discussing in previous podcasts, it was finally occupied in late uh, late March. So it was not the beginning of March. So Ukraine, Russians were sharing the city for a couple of weeks and they were also bombarding it uh, with bombs from the planes and there were quite a lot of destruction and there were sometimes there were for example a multi-story buildings destroyed and there were dead bodies just to and somebody had to to do something about that russians were still not in the city and so they were functioning this lady and her firm company were functioning in a way to 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 bury these bodies but the problem was that nobody so there were no families and no money. So this company was doing that for free, but what they could afford for free, it was just this uh, wooden cross and a number. And as far as there were no electricity in the city at that moment, they were putting in a kind of a uh, piece of paper, not paper, maybe a book, book they were putting number. And if they had information, names or name, Maybe place that that date of the of the death, etc. So in most cases they were able to establish that, and they were sending their people to 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 bury these bodies. So this was the start. 
And indeed, uh, now the question is to identify these people. And uh, these bodies were exhumated, and uh, they are now in, um, as far as as far as, we, as far as we understand, in in Kharkiv, in the morgues of Kharkiv. And uh, this is a long process through DNA to identify these bodies. But except for these uh, deaths of uh, from the shelling. Russians, as as they tried to capture Izum, there was huge shelling, and, and indeed, several hundreds of people died. Uh, there was also mass graves in this place, and uh, most probably these were mass, gra- mass graves of people that Russians have t- captured after they entered the city. And one of these mass graves, we we could have seen, uh, there were I think uh, seventeen bodies. And they have marks of torture and uh, and violence made over them, and uh, they they were a, in a collective grave, right? Because these graves we are talking about are are in the individual graves, right? And uh, so this is a mixture of of people who died from the shelling and just put without any coffins, just in the plastic bags into this into the sand, and. And people who were tortured actually by the Russian army, either Ukrainian soldiers or people who supported the Ukrainian soldiers, and uh, killed maybe on this precisely uh, spot because we are, we were also shown the places where Ukrainian military found the the signs of torture. For example, for example, cut fingers or ropes uh, which were used to uh, to kill. And people to kill prisoners, uh, Ukrainian prisoners of this Russian army. So this is a mixture between the two, right? Yeah, right. And what is also important that, uh, well, before the occupation, there were this company was burying people like it did before the war. But when Russians came into the city, there was a tacit agreement, uh, maybe even forced agreement between the people from the from the administration and this company, finally they didn't have a choice. So there were new bodies, new dead people in the streets for, for, for multiple reasons. And they were a little bit forced, as that lady said, to to bury these people. So they were bringing these bodies in plastic bags and most of time with a with kind of information, but sometimes without any information. But when it was information, so they never opened these black bags. And this is important, extremely important now, because of this process of verification. We know one case, and we'll talk about that later in in a couple of minutes, about that sometimes people, I mean, relatives and families, have this ultimate hope uh, that, that identity... Uh, of the body was not checked at the moment of the of when it was buried by this company so a uh, big part of these graves uh, took place under occupation and let's also add that the bridge between two sides of a river which is in the museum was broken so this company people from this company they had to cross uh, not by car, but just uh, walk to walk through the river to depose the bodies. And Russian vehicles, Russian military vehicles, are uh, in the same forest and it really 
close to this uh, to these graves, so it looked like they were. You had to cross this Russian military um, it was equipment. Equipment. There were also just tank, to go tanks. to this. Yeah, and why this particular cemetery was selected to be the place? Only one reason. In March, there were a lot, a lot of dead people in Izum, and this is the only cemetery in the city with sand. Not so in sense, so it's easier to dig graves. Sometimes they had nineteen people per day, and I guess there were just a couple of men to dig the graves. So that's why they decided to choose this one, and that's why it's in the forest and all that. Yeah, this is a very beautiful pine forest, and when we entered it, there was uh, a sun was going through the pines, and uh, actually, you can you can see the video on our Twitter. Uh, actually, it was this play of 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 dark of shadows and and some extremely beautiful place, but extremely horrible. Right now, you understand. So uh, the story that you mentioned that we are going to talk about is a story of a writer, which is called Volodymyr Vakulenko, and we went to see his family with uh, our friends from Pen Ukraine, with with Tatiana Ter and others. Uh, because Volodymyr Vakulenko is a writer who is considered to be missing. We don't know whether he is alive or not. And uh, he's, a, he was, he's a very patriotic writer. So in, in this eastern Ukraine, Kharkiv Oblast, which, which was not typical, you know, and uh, maybe for this he was just known by his, by his neighbors and maybe they just informed the Russians when they occupied the city and its suburb called Kapitolivka, where where he was living. And uh, Volodymyr Vakulenko, for example, was writing uh, books for children. And in our library, as we have three kids with Tanya, we also have uh, some books from him. And uh, so when Russians entered Kapitolivka, the, the, the first have taken Vakulenko because, as he said, as his friends told us, uh, he said earlier that the, when, if there, w- there was an occupation by the Russian army, his neighbors would inform the Russians about him. So everybody knew about his positions, pro-Ukrainian positions. He was speaking Ukrainian. And, um, well, it's obvious that the, the region is not uh, not uh, homogeneous. So there are, there are people who are sympathizing. Still, there are people who are sympathizing with Russians. Uh, but the dramatic thing is that Vakulenko has a son who is uh, has autistic uh, autistic uh, elements. He doesn't speak, and uh, he's already a, a teenager. And he he understands. He smiles. He expresses his emotions, but unfortunately, he doesn't speak. Uh, his uh, wife uh, is, is also have. Uh, some disabilities, so she is on 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 a wheelchair, and uh, Vakulenko was actually uh, taking care of, of of their son, and now as he's missed, the Russians have taken him and and his son first, and he, he they have given them back, they have took the documents on on him and his son, and then he came, they came back and took him and and never brought him back. Yeah, but the important thing here, and this is really important, that the first time they he, they arrested him with his son, they took uh, documents uh, for both kid and adult and Volodya. 
But then when they were back home, they were without documents and they were rearrested. I mean, Volodymyr was rearrested a couple of days later, one or two days later, without his son. And then since then, it was late March, right? Late March. Mm, there were no news from him and his mother. He lived with mother, his mother and his stepfather, so uh, married to his mother, an old gentleman, very nice and very intelligent one. They were doing what, whatever they could to find a trace of uh, Volodymyr. It lasted for weeks and then for months. They were traveling to Izum from Kapitolivka. They were asking in all the common known places of torture, of uh, arrested people. They were asking everywhere and nobody was able to, to provide a response. Let's remind that occupation lasted for many, many months there and they were never informed that he was killed or whatever. Um, and finally, they are in this kind of uncertainty, what really happened. And meanwhile, they were to take care of this, of his son, this autistic uh, teenager. Uh, it's not, not easy thing when you live in an uh, underground and there is no electricity and you have some problems to, walk, to, 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 to take a bus, etc. But they were doing their best there in their 70s already. They are not young and they were hoping that one day Volodymyr will be back. But after the counteroffensive uh, happened, so the city was liberated and the village Kapitolivka was liberated, they started to, 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 to search for information with even more energy. And the wife uh, of Vakulinka, they are divorced for many years already. Vakulinka, Volodymyr Vakulinka was raising his kids al almost alone. Uh, she was informed she was informed by uh, Israel, by Prokhorus, that uh, the name Bakulinka is in this book from this funeral company and his body could be under the number 319, doesn't matter, that number. But everything is to be checked, yeah? And then there were exhumation processes and all the 450-something bodies are now actually in Kharkiv because there is no possibility to make any kind of ADN analysis in Izum when you don't have electricity, etc. And the problem is that uh, the family now, mother, has to, uh, to, 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 to go through this ADN Tests and DNA. DNA and to establish uh, the truth. And there is uh, alternative information is that uh, I think another son, another son another. just went when under occupation, he went from Izum through Russia and people there to, to, to just leave, leave the, 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 the war zone and people there told him that uh, his father is actually in captivity in the so-called Luhansk People's Republic, I think. So we have this conflicting information, whether he is alive or he is in prison, and uh, his closest relatives, his mother doesn't, doesn't know this story. So this is, the, this is the reality of this war as well as um, the, the very difficult reality that... Uh, that cultural figures of Ukraine, such as writers who, who write in different kind of books, including books for children, are 
well, actually imprisoned, tortured, tortured without any information for their relatives. And we do hope that he is alive, not killed, but uh, everything. Uh, and maybe last thing about this story, his mother is convinced that he is alive because, because of the documents. Because first time he was arrested, he was arrested with his documents and he was back home without documents. So the second time he was arrested, he was somebody without any documents. And at the moment, imagine the situation when the Russians uh, depose the a body to this uh, funeral company, they, they needed documents to prove that it was him. But he was not with his documents. So this gives, provides a kind of hope for mother that this, it was another body. And they just uh, just provided these documents just to to bury yeah, somebody, there is somebody hope. else. Of course, there is hope. And uh, his mother hoping that uh, his uh, her son is, is alive. And we hope this too. Another story we will tell you is a story of a little girl who died from Russian shelling in a village called Bezruki. Uh, the village is also in Kharkiv Oblast. We went there on Saturday and uh, it is just 15 kilometers from the Russian border. Uh, you might think that it is a very dangerous place to go. It was a very dangerous place in uh, in spring, but also in summer. Now it is not a dangerous place, which doesn't mean that it will not become one. Soon, uh, well, the situation is changing. But the village was a a big place for, for, for heavy fighting. And uh, we have met uh, a woman called Alla, who just lost, who lost in, in June, in just several seconds, she lost her daughter and her granddaughter. The granddaughter is eight-year-old girl called Rita, who was just reading a book in her courtyard, reading a children's book. And uh, this was a cluster bomb. And the cluster bombs are sending lots of little fragments, uh, steel fragments, which are flying with huge speed, very low from the earth. So if even if you... Even if you, uh, uh, if you if you lay down on on the street on on the earth on the land, you still risk to be killed or wounded by this by these fragments. And for, unfortunately, this is what happened. The girl, the eight year old, eight year old girl, was reading a book, and there was explosion. And her aunt Yulia was uh, doing something also in the courtyard, and uh, the girl was killed at this precise moment uh, very quickly and then uh, the aunt Eula had I think several dozens of these little fragments in her body so they tried to save her but unfortunately also in a week she died and it, it is it is just impossible to it's very hard to listen to Allah uh, and because her words are a, a big wound and she's crying she's screaming all the time, and uh, and and she she's repeating to us, "I have nothing to tell you. What can I tell you?" And she keeps keeps telling this this story about the Rita. Uh, she has shown uh, us uh, her room. We have seen her drawings, her children drawings. I remember two of them. One of them was done on the 
on the eve of the 2022 New Year party, and there was a, a cat in the New Year garments, and there was uh, snow around, there were stars. And another another drawing is for, I think, for her mother's birthday, in which she says how she loves her, and there was also a, a cat with two other little cats. And there was also these children's books on her, on her table. There was a very nice white dress, as many, you know, young girls have this dress of a kind of a princess dress. So this is it, and this is this reality of the world that you, you're, you're just living on, on your courtyard, and there, there is a cluster bomb that, uh, that kills a little girl with, and Allah was telling us that she was so loving and so kind. And she was uh, actually taking care of a, of a cat, which she called Mishka. Mishka means a little mouse, the, the, the black cat. And we have seen this little cat. So the cat is still a kitten, a little bit more grown since June, of course. We can, we can, we can uh, imagine how small and tiny and nice it was in June. And uh, this is also kind of a witness of, of Rita, of this little girl. Yes, and imagine in this empty house, there were two sisters living in the house, mother of Rita, 32, and her sister, 39, another one which died in the same shelling. And there were three kids. There were Rita, eight, and there were also two other kids from this mother, 10 and 18. So it was a pure chance. They, were, they just had their lunch and the mother of Rita, she was washing the dishes. That's why she was inside the house. And Rita was reading a book, and the, her aunt was she, she was just putting things in the garden. And it was extremely calm day. There were no there was there were no air alert. There were no combats. Everything was very calm. As Allah said, they had uh, all kind of um, behavior. They were hiding. In the underground, if there were combats or whatever, they had already had all the experience of this high, heavy fighting in March and in April. This is astonishing, but this village was never really occupied by Russian army. They passed through the village once, but then they were pushed back. So we know people, Ukrainian soldiers who were on their positions in this village but it was never never under Russian occupation. This is astonishing because so close to Russia. And in June, situation was quite uh, calm. So it means that there were no sounds, no uh, explosions, whatever. So there were no risks. So it was just an ordinary day without any shelling. And just people were inside their private, uh, private uh, territory, I would say. And it is such a strategy. And imagine this empty house because the family, all the family left. There are some damage in, in the house, windows and roof, but this is minor. It's quite minor. It could be easily, easily repaired. But surely enough, both families left this house. Uh, mother of Rita and uh, uh, these other kids as well, they were taken by their father to Kharkiv. And imagine this Allah who had uh, the whole family around her, and now today she is alone with her husband, but she is alone in the in the village, and she, she has no energy to do something with the house, which is 
not destroyed, but nobody wants to leave. And she was showing the exact place where all it happened. It looks like an ordinary house, an ordinary garden without any kind of particularity. But she was crying, crying all the time. And she had all these pictures of this blood going of her daughter and granddaughter. And this is a, a terrible, terrible loss. Yeah, this is what we face. Uh, what we face in, in the regions which are liberated by Ukrainians, but of course these stories, these wounds will hardly ever. Um, this will hardly ever go come back to normal. So when little girls like Rita die in a cluster bomb shelling, this is something absolutely difficult to accept. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko, I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, who is Ukrainian scholar and journalist from Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the biggest and oldest Ukrainian media NGOs. Follow us on social networks, uh, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Follow this podcast wherever you get your podcast. And uh, do not forget to support us, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your uh, donations to help people affected by this war and to help Ukrainian defenders. Now we're buying cars for Ukrainian defenders. Cars are saving lives on the front line. patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Thank you.